Previously on Transformers University, we leapt into 1985 via the second season of the Transformers cartoon, and now we continue that look as we jump into episodes 6 through 10 of season 2 of the Transformers on Transformers University. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Transformers University. I am your host, Anthony Brucalli, owner-operator, madman behind TFU.info. And today, episode 18, we are talking about the Transformers cartoon, season 2, episodes 6 through 10. And today we have a lot of special guests. We're going to have a lot of fun. So uh, before I jump right into the show, I want to first thank our new patrons. This week we've added two new patrons. David Schulz, you've heard on here before, the gamer going gray, has joined the Patreon, along with uh, a gentleman just known as Ken. And they've both joined at the freshman level, which is only a buck a month, only $1 a month. So I want to thank you both for joining our Patreon. And that puts us at 12 patrons. We're almost halfway to our first goal. So if you want to help us to our first goal, which is me re-editing the first three episodes of Transformers University uh, into full-on video episodes with full video reference to everything I am talking about as best I can, uh, then come on by and, and subscribe. So that is patreon.com slash tfuinfo, patreon.com slash tfuinfo. So before I get into the episodes we are going to cover today, there is something I left out of the previous episode about season two, and that is the new theme song. So the theme song has changed a bit. It's the same lyrics. Uh, it's different music. And we're going to give it a quick listen before we jump into the rest of season two. So let's get into episodes 6 through 10 of season 2. Today we will be covering the Immobilizer, the Autobot Run, Atlantis Arise, Day of the Machines, and Enter the Nightbird. And we're going to start with the Immobilizer. Now this is uh, an episode that a lot of people feel, myself included, uh, is a very much a wheeljack episode because it revolves around the Immobilizer, one of his inventions. So... As it turns out, when I had proposed the idea of doing this episode to Soundjack from Steel City Bots, he had a quite different take on it. And uh, we actually discussed it a little bit at NJ ToyCon, uh, where we had met up. And he put together this fantastic recap of the entire episode along with his view. When Nant asked me to be on this, uh, he recommended that I talk about the episode The Immobilizer as it is a big Wheeljack episode, and I'm a big Wheeljack fan, so I was like, yeah, I'll talk about a Wheeljack episode. 
Um, but despite the fact the title of the episode is The Immobilizer and the full name of the invention is The Wheeljack Instant Immobilizer, uh, this episode actually is much more of an Ironhide-centric episode. So the episode starts off with Wheeljack having created the Wheeljack Instant Immobilizer and is about to do a demonstration. Uh, he asks Hound to project a hologram of Laserbeak, which, uh, might I ask, how are you planning on freezing a hologram? Uh, but then, regardless, Ironhide comes in, sees this Laserbeak hologram flying around, thinks it's the real thing, and then starts blasting wildly at it. Um, this unfortunately causes some damage and some rubble to fall on Wheeljack. Uh, Ironhide realizes his mistake and starts to think that he might not be fit for service anymore. Um, Wheeljack says it's fine, but uh, the device is damaged and he needs a new polarizer for the immobilizer. He asks Bumblebee and Spike to go into town and grab it. And then the next scene, we see uh, Bumblebee and Spike in an arcade and Bumblebee is playing uh, an arcade game with a crowd watching. Quite impressed. Uh, a, per a specific person comes over and wants to talk to Bumblebee directly. Uh, this person will is known as Carly and will be coming back in later episodes. But at the time being, uh, it's Carly. Um, and she's introducing herself to Bumblebee. Spike, maybe getting a bit jealous, reminds Bumblebee that they should have been back at the base a long time ago. They head out uh, and they get in traffic and they get pulled over by a cop um, who is questioning Spike's age. Uh, and for being capable of driving. So I guess that would put him at most 15, probably more like 13, 14, I would think. I don't think there's an official age on Spike. But anyway, this the, the specific, calling out the age is important, but we'll get to that later. Um, well, at this traffic stop, uh, Ravage comes and attacks Bumblebee. Uh, he's fended off, but he leaves something on Bumblebee, and that thing turns out to be a spy bug, uh, which records visuals and sound and... Uh, oh, the Decepticons overhear about Wheeljack talking about the Immobilizer, and Megatron vows to take it. Uh, Optimus Prime decides to go out into the field for a safer testing ground, uh, and when they get to the location, Prime puts Ironhide on patrol, and then Wheeljack goes, tests the device, and manages to freeze a river completely. While Spike's going to get a closer look, he accidentally activates the Immobilizer, which is about to freeze him, but Wheeljack kicks him out of the way, and um, ends up getting frozen himself. Everyone's concerned because they don't know how to undo the effects. Meanwhile, on the perimeter, Ironhide is, is watching out and sees some movement in the distance. When he goes to attack it, he realizes it is, it is the human Carly, uh, who he chastises for being there. While this conversation is happening, the Decepticons attack, um, grab the immobilizer, and are swept away as they are all standing on the frozen river and the river unfreezes. Um, they go, the Autobots go back to base without the immobilizer, unfortunately. And um, during repairs, Ironhide believes that the Decepticon attack was his fault for being distracted and decides to retire from active service. Nothing anyone can say can help, but at the very least, Carly is able to convince him to give her a tour of the base. Um, a little while, oh, during the tour, uh, important, um, Carly pockets a grenade. Uh, that's going to be good. 
Um, later on, Wheeljack unfreezes. And then around that same time, Spike notices Carly is not there. So he's concerned and he and Bumblebee go out to look for her. Uh, while she, while they are looking for her, Carly has gotten herself a boat, has found where the Decepticon base is, and swims down to it and plants the grenade she pocketed on the outer hull. Uh, they are. She is caught by the Decepticons, but the laser beam grabbing her is caught by the Autobot Sky Spy. So Ironhide goes out and tells Bumblebee and Spike what's going on, and they go try to rescue Carly. Carly's brought inside the base, um, put in prison, put in a cell, and the grenade goes off, flooding a good portion of the base. Everything is able to be sealed off except for her cell. Uh, the Decepticons watch Carly drown, and once they think she is dead, Ironhide is able to swim in, grab her, and get her to the surface with her still alive. Um, they're about to flee, but then Ironhide is immobilized by the immobilizer, and uh, the Decepticons attack, but also a bunch of Autobots come to the rescue. Uh, Rumble is controlling the device. Autobots left and right are getting frozen, and then Carly comes up with an idea, having Brawl drill her underneath the immobilizer, well, up to the immobilizer, Jazz distracting the Decepticons with a sound and light show, and then she crosses two wires, uh, and then when Rumble attempts to activate the weapon again, it instead starts to unfreeze all of the Autobots, after which Ironhide destroys it and the Decepticons retreat. Uh, at headquarters, Wheeljack is confused about what, how that happened and Carly states it is a theory she has been working on since she was accept she accepted her science scholarship to MIT at this point uh, Spike asks her out on a date and they go driving off together um, which bringing up the <laughs> Spike not being old enough to drive he is apparently dating a college student or at least someone going to college soon huh uh, but anyway this episode is important for two main reasons one the immobilizer is probably the most famous of Wheeljack's inventions besides the Dinobots uh, but they're not always his inventions the immobilizer isn't either but it has popped up again in continuities in the prime cartoon uh as an accessory to uh the masterpiece exhaust which is a redeco of wheeljack and minor reference and minor cameo appearances elsewhere usually in association with wheeljack the other big takeaway from the episode it, mainstay of the episode i mean is carly who does become the bit of a recurring character and will eventually end up marrying Spike and being the mother to Daniel Witwicky later on. And yeah, overall, a very good episode, even though it is not mostly about Wheeljack. So no, it's not mostly about Wheeljack, but that is one fantastic recap from Soundjack. And you can catch Soundjack on YouTube at username Soundjack426. That's youtube.com slash Soundjack426. Uh, and you can also catch him on the Nerdy Geek Talk Network, usually on Steel City Bots. Uh, you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts such as this one, uh, iTunes, uh, Google Play, and the like. Now, a few things uh, that I had actually taken three pages of notes on this show. So fortunately, I didn't have to use most of those notes, but I do want to go through some of the more interesting observations I had of this episode 
So, Ironhide shooting a laser beak in the base, even though it was a hologram, uh, goes a long way to speaking towards the Ark's terrible security system. Uh, Laserbeak and Ravage seem to regularly enter the base, and I think the writers were starting to pick up on this at the start of Season 2, because uh, within this episode, The Immobilizer, and an episode we will talk about later, the writers do try to address the fact that the Autobots know people walk into the base pretty much at will. As Soundjack mentioned, this is the first appearance of Carly. Carly is voiced by Arlene Bannis. So the writer of this episode, Earl Kress, who uh, we had last heard from on one of these installments of The Ultimate Doom, uh, Part 2, I believe, uh, he created Carly and he prided himself on creating Carly. It was this entire universe of male robots and boys and... Um, I know I did feel that we needed a female character. I think I had been listening to Carly Simon, <laughs> and I think that's where I took the name Carly from. I just liked it and thought it fit. I bet people think it's, it's because it was Autobots and there's Carly, but it wasn't. <laughs> now, another thought I had while watching this particular episode, especially as it relates to Carly, uh, and her inclusion as the smart human in this episode. Now, we already have a smart human in the cartoon universe and in this continuity, and that is Chip Chase. And I do wonder if there was a bit of um, a sensitivity by either the producing team or the writers to not include a character who is in a wheelchair and essentially immobilized to some extent in an episode about a device that immobilizes people. So thus creating an opening for the character of Carly to come in. Some other things of note in this episode. There are some strange transformation sequences in this episode for sure. Um, they're good. They're animated well. They're just not uh, some of the ones we're used to seeing. Uh, in the scene where Wheeljack gets immobilized, he gets turned gray, which if you have the SCF pewter Wheeljack PVC figure, um, it's probably about the only good use for him. Uh, same goes for the Tiny Titans figure, uh, since they are both predominantly gray and uh, are fairly immobile. Uh, Trailbreaker does appear in this episode, and you know what that means? Someone needs a force field. Uh, during the battle, Skywarp uses a bouncer bomb, which I don't think we've seen before, and I'm pretty sure we never see again. And it is a rocket that literally bounces off of things. And <laughs> uh, it doesn't actually explode. It just hits into things and then bounces around like a pinball. Uh, another thing of note is that Ironhide gives this tour of the Autobot base to Carly and they have this enormous ammunition closet and again that's one of those things that's in this episode and I'm pretty sure we never see that again either. Now when Carly gets kidnapped by the Decepticons we find out that Thundercracker might be a little bit sexist? Water flow halted except in the chamber occupied by the female prisoner. So I find it funny that Thundercracker notes the quote female prisoner meaning either 
he felt the need to note that she was both a female and a prisoner. Or the Decepticons have more prisoners and we are not privy to seeing them. And theoretically, they all drown in this scene. After the rescue of Carly, when we get to Braun drilling through the earth, we find uh, the return of his drill bit, which we haven't seen since uh, the Ultimate Doom Part 1. And when the immobilizer is used in the final sequence, uh, apparently it is the only thing in this show that fires accurately because it is the only thing that's actually hit anyone more than once and more than once within a scene. And now we move on to the Autobot Run. So the Autobot Run is written by Donald F. Glute. It is the second episode animated by the ACOM animation group. And so there are some oddities in this one for sure. Now this one starts with an F1 race and there are some very interesting signs on the racetrack. Some of those signs include New Year tires, Fenzoil lubes, and Ho-Key, H-O-K-Y. Uh, and these are not the only weird signs throughout the episode. Now, the uh, Decepticons, they're uh, hanging out in a ghost town, an abandoned uh, western cowboy town, with such fine establishments as uh, Liquor Saloon and Harry's Bakes, uh, <laughs> along with a store simply called Cows. And in this town, the Constructicons are building Megatron's new weapon. And for more on Megatron's scheme and the overall fun plot of this episode, here is Podvocacy's Jason Kirk. In the pantheon of schemes Megatron attempts in order to defeat the Autobots, his plan in the Autobot run to trap them in their vehicular modes is actually a pretty solid idea. Given that the majority of the fighting in the series is done in robot form, this would put the Autobots at a major disadvantage. So Megatron uses his newly built Transfixatron... Wait, is, is, that, is that really what it's called? Re you sure? Okay, wow. Anyway, this episode has a lot of quirky things in it that kind of makes me love it. Megatron calls Starscream a guinea pigatron while testing the transfixatron. <laughs> I can't believe they called it that. <laughs> while testing on Starscream, which leads to the viewers getting some peak Chris Lotta as groveling Starscream. When the Autobots show up for the charity race, a spectator asks, where are their cars? I'd like to remind you at this time that the leader of the Autobots literally has a torso that's a truck cab. So not really a smart crowd in this one. And in the true mustache-twirling villain fashion, Megatron proclaims that the Autobots must be having a slight identity problem after they have been transfixed in vehicle mode. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. <laughs> Megatron 1, Autobot 0. Other fun things in the episode include a rare roller appearance, a less rare Seeker animation miscolor, Starscream miscolor to Skywarp, and Jazz plays some traveling music during the race that feels a bit like the great soundtrack fans would get in the movie the following year. Yes, I really do think it's great. Don't at me. And one final thing I love from this episode, Megatron commands Starscream to transform into root mode after using the transfixer who's a what's it on him. And I love that as a name for robot mode. So with that, I suggest everyone go and seek out this ridiculous yet fun episode. And remember, the real winners are us, folks. So you can catch Jason on a number of podcasts. Podvocacy, 
uh, Paladins of Voltron, where he and Jeremy Dennis of Transmissions review episodes of the Voltron Netflix series. Uh, you can also catch Jason occasionally on the Radio Free Cybertron Network on a number of shows there. And he has a podcast called The Everlasting Minute, which is a minute-by-minute breakdown of the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Now, one thing he mentioned is Megatron calling robot mode root mode. And I was thinking about this, and I kind of did double-check against TFWiki's entry for this, tfwiki.net. Go check it out. Um... That had to be a typo, right? Someone just missed the B in robot and made it root by accident. So some of the more interesting things in this episode, Megatron refers to themselves and the Autobots as Transformers, which is the first time uh, that it is a self-referenced term. Um, Too much dust in the race to determine a winner. And as TFWiki points out, uh, how did the dust get there before the cars? When the Autobots transform, Shockwave is there, which is kind of odd because Shockwave should be on Cybertron. Uh, there's a kid in the stands wearing a Spider-Man shirt, so that is another appearance of Spider-Man in the Transformers. The first being in Marvel Comics issue number three, which uh, we talked about a few episodes back. And worth noting is that the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon was animated by uh, Sunbow and Marvel Productions, the same animation house that brings you the Transformers. So, of also of note in this episode, uh, the Decepticons win at the beginning, right? The Autobots are stuck in vehicle mode, and Bumblebee, Spike, and Chip escape and head to Autobot base. Uh, Bumblebee not affected by the Transfixitron because he was not in the race. And there's a... They try to figure out, along with Wheeljack and Ratchet, who are also back at the base, um, how to reverse the effects. And there's this weird half-Sunstreaker, half-Optimus Prime robot that they use on the screen of Teletran 1 that is a little bizarre. And Megatron also building a second device, a device that eats Autobots. Now, it's also fun to note that there are two episodes in a row here that involve a MacGuffin device that essentially freezes uh, Transformers. And it feels like we're, we're running into a multi-episode theme here. Uh, when we go to break, so the bumpers, when you go to break, you know, the Transformers will return after these messages. Uh, they had the wrong music. After these messages. We now return to the Transformers. So if you grew up around the 80s or you're familiar with Sunbow cartoons, you know damn well the music that played behind that should have G.I. Joe will return after these messages. We now return to G.I. Joe. So a couple of the other things worth mentioning in this episode so um wheeljack events this grenade to basically reverse the effects of the transfixitron and this grenade becomes a bit of a uh, hot potato uh american football style and gets thrown around from spike to other characters and it gets thrown 
to Chip Chase, the kid in the wheelchair, who stands up to catch it. And <laughs> I remember one year at a BotCon, this was on in one of the viewing rooms where they would just play episodes of the show. And someone yelled out from the back, and I won't name names because I know who it is. Uh, <laughs> he was a good, he's still a good friend of mine. I don't want to embarrass him, but uh, he yelled out from the back, Chip's not handicapped. He's just lazy. But, you know, we don't actually know the extent of Chip Chase's handicap. So he may be able, in some capacity, to stand uh, on his legs or at least rise up on his legs. Uh, you also notice, uh, watching the animation a little bit closer, he actually does push down on the arms of his chair to kind of propel himself up to catch the grenade. Uh, and he's actually the one that sets off the grenade freeing the Autobots. Uh, during the battle, the Constructicons form Devastator. He um, attacks and throws Cliff Jumper into the liquor saloon right next to uh, the glass store, which survives both buildings around it falling, which is a neat little quiet visual gag. Uh, that if you're not really attuned to it, uh, you wouldn't notice and laugh at, but that is actually really funny. And the Transfixitron is actually used to beat Devastator, um, but it doesn't freeze him in Devastator mode as you would think it would do. It actually forces the Constructicons apart and into vehicle mode. And the Decepticons retreat and they leave the Constructicons behind. And it's never really explained what happens after that. But that will bring us from one fairly bizarre episode to another. And this is the interesting thing about season two is that the episodes do get a little bit more out there. It's not so much simply about a war between the Autobots and Decepticons, but about building the world that this is in. And that takes us to Atlantis Arise. And this one is written by Douglas Booth. And this one introduces a new set of villains for the Autobots, and that is the Sub-Atlanticans, uh, led by their leader, Nergil. So Nergil was voiced by Wally Burr, the voice director on the show. And in an interview I found online, he actually mentions that the name Nergil came from Los Angeles DJ Gary Owens, who used to make up words uh, as part of his shtick on air and just blow through them as if you should know them. And I guess Nergil was one of those that he had made up and became an in-joke with the writers and production staff. And that word, Nergil, uh, is the name of the leader of the sub-Atlanticans. Now, I had to think about this a little bit. So the episode is called Atlantis Arise. The race and the city we meet in this episode are the Sub-Atlanticans and Sub-Atlantica, uh, respectively. So does that mean they exist below Atlantis? So, since we're in the water, more on this episode. You know him, you love him. Gabriel Owens. The Salty Seaman. <laughs> 
Hey folks, uh, welcome to uh, Gabe Owens, the Salty Seaman, going to do some uh, Atlantis Arise. Uh, I when I was rewatching these a couple of years ago on the uh, the now missed hub with my son when he was a little younger. Apparently, we missed this episode because it's uh, it's been a while since I've seen this. Probably since my early twenties, and I uh, first acquired uh, uh, VHS tapes VHS tapes of the entire series. So. Uh, be interesting. It's, and this is a fairly infamous episode for many reasons, and I'll get to that as I go on here. You know, one of the things is uh, Soundwave gets a bad rap for being kind of an emotionalist, you know, and he has the very robotized voice, of course. Everyone remembers the voice. Of course, it's the great uh, Frank Walker doing his Dr. Claw voice with a, uh, a robotic uh, flanger thrown, a semi-flange, as we will say, thrown over it. But here, yeah, Soundwave is a little saucy. Little sassy, he's like, observe. Now, are you interested, Megatron? I was like, oh wow, a little little assassin uh, sound wave there. So kind of like that. And we also get a little nod to uh, sound wave being a telepath, which they don't really do a lot in the cartoon. But every once in a while, someone reads his, uh, I guess, character sheet and remembers, like, oh yeah, this guy's supposed to be telepathic. So we see that uh, when we run into the sub Atlanteans. Uh, I don't know why they have to be sub, they just can't be Atlanteans, but, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess that's where they're from. They're just not good enough to be Atlanteans. Oh, this was the famous episode with, uh, playing football against the Dinobots, with, a uh, Spike out there with these personalized, uh, Spike team, uh, football, uh, uniform and pads. Though, I mean, why even wear pads at this point? I mean, when the Dinobot falls on you, you're dead regardless. So, uh, yeah, Autobots are often really, really stupid in the, the type of sports they want to play with uh, their human friends. We see, uh, we have Hounds rarely seen uh, cover mode, as, uh, you know, Open Jeep would have a cover for a foul weather. But, uh, yeah, I do, I'm 99% sure, that, yeah, the, the toy did not come with said cover, which is one of a long list of grievances I think most kids had with the show, is all the cool attachments and gadgets they have in the cartoon that the toys don't have. Get a little bit of uh, lore in here. Uh, the term function cycle, which uh, Megatron threatens to uh, uh, take care of Wheeljack's version, which I guess is life. Not a term I hear a lot, but I like. I like that a lot. Function cycle. And of course, uh, as mentioned uh, my last review, Lettuce Rise is one of the few that has uh, as a buzzsaw episode. And he's not just in it. Like He's a regular... Uh, uh, he's a pretty big character in the episode. Like him and Starts, him and Zerbeek work in tandem as uh, you know twin uh, combat buzzards, essentially. You know, and they were scouts at the beginning, and he I would have liked to have seen a lot more of that. But you know, this is kind of one of the few episodes we see that. And other than another infamous one, City of Steel, which I was reviewed before, but I think that was the, I think believe we clarified that as the first time Buzzsaw did show up. <clears throat> And, of course, this is uh, one of those uh, underwater episodes where they treat the underwater as the exact same physics as the uh, surface, which advanced robots are not. That makes zero absolute sense, as they just are, other than, I mean, if it wasn't for Spike swimming around in his uh, oh-so-cute little green Speedo, I mean, you probably, in the occasional bubble, you probably wouldn't even know this is set underwater. It's kind of like latter-era SpongeBob cartoons or, or the Snorks. It's interesting uh, scale issues going on with Braun in this episode. I don't know if maybe I've never noticed it before, or it's uh, specific to this episode. I know it's 
it's one of the more infamous ones for being kind of goofy and goofy animation amongst also the storyline. And I'm actually watching it. I didn't really have an issue with the animation, but Braun is interesting in that they draw his car, his uh, his pickup mode toy accurately, essentially, which is kind of neat, but like it really doesn't, you know, generally they try to take the the mini cars and, and make them look like, you know, what they should look like in real life. if They weren't, you know, mini chibi versions of, of cars and stuff. So him being like a, a, a chibi pickup truck is kind, of, and you can see the lines of where his feet would pop out in the in the toy. It's kind of weird, but also kind of neat. And then there's several scenes of him in the battles where he is, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with uh, the other the larger Autobots. And generally, he is a smaller guy, and that's kind of his deal. He was one of the shorter Autobots, but he packs the biggest punch. So uh, it's interesting how all, all seemingly off model he is from his other appearances we've seen so far. And I believe uh, this is a callback to the Immobilizer. Did uh, I haven't looked at the episode list. If the Immobilizer existed before this, then Wheeljack basically gave him an invention he already created to, uh, to Nurgle. He, uh, I don't know, I really talked about, but yes, this, this episode essentially is uh, kind of just dropping notes as I go. But yes, the Decepticons team up with a, the sub, the, what would be the Atlanteans race. They're called the Sub-Atlanteans here. They're a green fish people, and... Uh, they invade Washington, D.C., and wackiness ensues. Uh, but <clears throat> overall, it's interesting to watch. You know, they kidnap, at one point, they kidnap Wheeljack and are making him do in, uh, inventions, and one of them is an immobilizer, which, you know, makes sense. It's something he's already created. Why, recre- why create something brand new, I guess? And we also get Bumblebee's Urkel impression in this uh, ant roll, that beautiful f- bean footage. Did I do that? And for those keeping track at home, this is also an episode where Megatron seems to know his enemies a little better than he does in many other episodes. Uh, one of the things that Megatron kind of gets hit on is how little he seems to know the uh, the Autobot army he's up against, even though there's 20 or so at this point. As we see, or will see in a prime problem, he uh, he can't get Iron Ma- Iron Ironhide or Bumblebee straight. But he knew who Mil- was off the bat here. So he does seem to know some of the other Autobots besides Prime on site. Sometimes he doesn't seem to know or care. Uh, do you see it's just a sign of arrogance or a complete sign of stupidity that he just can't keep track of 20 of his greatest enemies and know who, what their names are, what their functions are. It seemed to be simple math for a such a esteemed general. But I digress. And of course, this episode has uh, definitely something I've seen many times in GIF form. Uh, Megatron... Uh, taking Abraham Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial off of his statue uh, seat and sitting in it himself, which is just a hilarious bit of animation. It's it, it's so serious that it's like almost you can almost forget it's goofy, but it is so goofy. And I've seen I'm not even seen this episode in probably twenty years, but having seen that that specific gift many many times on the message board, it, it, that part really did give me a chuckle. And we also get Starscream dropping the line, you treacherous Hydro Weasel, which is now a personal favorite, and I will be trying to work this into every conversation. So at the end of the episode, it's basically there to advertise the Dinobots, it's, and it does a really good job. You're eight or nine, and you saw this episode, you want to go get yourself some Dinobots, because it that was what they're advertised to do. They show up, and they kick a bunch of ass, and they're dinosaurs, and they're robots, and they break shit. But regardless, uh, this is a solid, fun very goofy uh, episode. We're still in the. Uh, we're not quite introducing the new season. Uh, the your two toys 
that weren't in season one yet. But, uh, you know, I think we're a few episodes away from that. And that's all Salty Seaman has. Uh, back to you, Ant. For long-time listeners, you already know this. You can catch Gabe on his YouTube channel, The Salty Seaman. You know, and, and Gabe rapped on the Dinobots, and there's some things worth mentioning with them. Uh, Grimlock mentions to Optimus in this episode that uh, he know, like he gives off the impression he knows that he saves Optimus and the Autobots time and time again. Uh, and in this episode, he does uh, help them out as well. It's actually a fairly big episode for Grimlock. He gets a lot of dialogue in this episode. Uh, but let's rewind just a little bit to the beginning of the episode. Uh, and let's go through a few things I noted down as well to go along with Gabe's recap. As Gabe mentioned, uh, all the real-world physics still work underwater, uh, which is very bizarre in this episode. So uh, planes fly underwater, and uh, the uh, sub-Atlantica has massive fires underwater. Uh, when Teletran 1 detects uh, the disturbance undersea, how do you think the Autobots got there? If you've been listening to my cartoon episodes, you know the answer. That is right. They drive there. And getting back to my point about Nurgle, Nurgle planned on betraying the Decepticons. Subatlantica shall rise again. Again? Again? So Subatlantica rose once before. Did it rise above Atlantis, or was it still sub-Atlantica, or did it rise to the surface, as we had mentioned before? These are all really bizarre things, and they use sub-Atlantica to invade Washington, D.C., and they cover it with the Dome of Invulnerability. I don't know if that's anything like the Cone of Silence from the old Get Smart TV show, but I'm going to assume it's very similar. Now, Nergil, as uh, Gabe mentioned, he doesn't actually use the immobilizer. He uses the magnetic dysfunction ray, which is another device that immobilizes. So now we have a three-episode theme of MacGuffin devices that all immobilize characters. Uh, he also mentions it's more effective against Autobots than Decepticons, which leaves an interesting note to uh, either biology or physiology of the Transformers that a device would be more effective against one and not the other. Nurgle uses the magnetic dysfunction rate to defeat Prime and the Autobots, who are then later saved by Grimlock and the Dinobots, who arrive on foot in D.C. So forget about the driving underwater. Let's talk about the walking to Washington from Washington State. Uh, or Oregon, depending on where you believe they are. But Nurgle is an interesting thing to note in this episode. Uh, eventually, he he is the one that blows up Sub-Atlantica, uh, and that's how the episode wraps. But with Nurgle, we now begin to build a rogues gallery that isn't just Megatron and Shockwave and Starscream and Soundwave, that there are outside forces that also threaten Earth and the Autobots, and even the Decepticons uh, that we have not met before in this form of world-building. And that is really big to the appeal of the cartoon, is that there's more to this universe than just warring robots in need of energy, that there are also these Earthbound races and alien races and other things we're going to come across uh, 
within the adventures of the Transformers. And one such instance would be Day of the Machines, which is the next episode we'll talk about. And Day of the Machines, uh, written by David Wise. And as I've mentioned before, David Wise is the most prolific writer on the G1 cartoon, also known for recycling scripts and occasionally recycling titles. Now, this episode, Day of the Machines, is about a computer that can control other computers. Our supercomputer, Torque 3. Someone's altered his programming. Torque seems to have taken control of all the machines in the compound. But this isn't the first time he's used this title or this concept uh, in the cartoon He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. There was an episode written by David Wise called, you guessed it, Day of the Machines. And in this episode, there is a very powerful computer. This computer can control anything from this drill to the palace defense system. And if you think in Transformers that it was the last time David Wise would recycle this uh, concept, oh, you're mistaken. So he used it in an episode of Defenders of the Earth called Audion Tweak and in The New Adventures of Speed Racer in an episode entitled Boss, and that's an acronym, B-O-S-S. And even in the cartoon adaptation of The Mighty Ducks in an episode called The Return of Dr. Droid. Yes, yes. I'm a hundred times more powerful than I was before. And with my transmitting capabilities, I can control every machine in the city. So let's break down the episode. So Soundwave and Megatron, they're breaking into a high-tech facility and they use the forgotten tape deck trick that we've seen uh, last episode of this podcast in the comic books and one we see very often. Uh, they then get placed into Lost and Found and then transform and uh, infiltrate the base and find this computer called Torque, T-O-R-Q-3. Uh, Torque 3, voiced by Greg Berger, also the voice of Dinobot and Jetfire. And uh, makes me wonder where the other Torques are, Torques 1 and 2. Torque 3 can build other machines. We find this out through a conversation uh, held by his creators, one of which named Dr. Paul Gates. Now, uh, many believe that Dr. Paul Gates is actually a reference to the Microsoft creators, Paul Allen and Bill Gates. Now, Bill Gates was uh, a burgeoning celebrity at the time, appearing on the cover of Time magazine in 1984. Now, it's, it's interesting to note in this episode, so we have a computer that can now build other machines, and uh, it's similar a lot to what we are experiencing today with people's concerns about artificial intelligence. Megatron and Soundwave and Torque 3, they take over this lab, Quantum Lab, as it's called, and the Autobots attempt to rescue the lab by calling in the Dinobots. Now, within this episode... Uh, Skyfire appears uh, to help out, and he appears in his Gerwalk mode uh, for a second time, uh, probably as a middle finger to uh, 
Harmony Gold and Robotech. And uh, there's lots of weird machines in this episode. Lots of little weird cars and things uh, that Torque controls. Now, within the episode, they realize that Torque controls these machines by a magnetic uh, radio-controlled microchip. And he attempts to take control of Optimus Prime. Uh, what he doesn't realize is that Optimus had used a fake chip uh, that he replaced the one Torque had put on him. And... Uh, does not have control of Optimus Prime, which then Prime defeats Torque 3, goes on to defeat Megatron and rescue Hound Spike and Skyfire, who were kidnapped uh, during the episode. Now, that is a really brief summary of the episode. And while I would say there's not a lot there in terms of Transformers history or interesting plot, this goes back to my earlier point that Torque 3 represents another figure within the rogues gallery uh, that we will see in some odd fiction later on, many years later as a reference, but something we see a lot of in the G1 cartoon is these characters popping up uh, for one episode and then going away. And one of those such characters is the focus of the final episode we'll talk about in this episode of Transformers University, and that is episode 26. Enter the Nightbird, and this episode we'll see uh, new writers Sylvia Wilson and Richard Milton. Now, I'm pretty sure these are pseudonyms for other writers or other people because Sylvia Wilson never wrote an episode after this and never wrote anything prior to this. Richard Milton never wrote anything after this and had written two episodes of the... 70s drama Marcus Welby MD. So given that limited amount of writing credit, part of me feels that these are ghostwriter names. And in fact, because the names are so fairly common uh, in terms of the last name, Milton Wilson, they're very hard to research on the internet. So let's just say they never wrote anything else ever again. And this episode starts with the Autobots installing Decepticon detecting panels at their base. Finally. So, again, we have this theme here of the Autobots realizing that their base is not terribly secure and finding a way to try and mitigate that. Now, this episode features a new character named Nightbird and in the history of the Transformers and the history of the cartoon this is one of the more well-remembered episodes and also one of the more controversial episodes and for more on the impact and the basics of the storyline of Enter the Nightbird here is Radio Free Cybertron's Brian Kilby. Oh, Enter the Nightbird. What can be said about Enter the Nightbird that hasn't already been said? Probably not much. I'm Brian Kilby, and I really love this episode. I really do. So basically, the episode starts off with uh, Dr. Fujiyama, the famous scientist. And of course, we all know that. He's a famous scientist. Uh, he has asked the Autobots to basically play high-end security guard during the announcement of... Uh, his latest creation, which is the greatest robot ever created by man, which he said was 
primitive based on Autobot standards, but we find out that that's not necessarily the case. So, inspired, I, I'm assuming, by Transformers and the Autobots, uh, Fujiyama creates a nearly fully formed Transformer. Uh, she's bipedal. Uh, she's uh, anthropomorphic. She's basically human-like in proportions. She's got to be because she's a ninja. Yeah, Dr. Fujiyama created a ninja robot. So, this episode is its one of those cornerstone episodes. It's like a pillar that holds up the weight of what Transformers is. It exemplifies the innocence and simplicity of storytelling that is season two of the Transformers. It really does. I mean, yeah, it's kind of goofy, but that's what season two of the Transformers is. Season two of the Transformers is basically what your average Hot Topic Transformers t-shirt buying fan pretends doesn't exist. I mean, it features like two of my favorite one-liners or bits from, like, the Transformers period. Basically, uh, when Megatron uh, and the Decepticons uh, attack the unveiling of the Nightbird, Megatron wishes lethal greetings to the Autobots. I bring you greetings, Optimus Prime! Lethal greetings! That's, it, it's, it's perfect. And later on, when uh, Autobots are engaging Nightbird, she is playing Roboto Possum because she's pretending that she was... Uh, taken down, and it's it's just beautiful and absurd, and I love it very much. And it, really, honestly, though, even though it's absurd, it's a much more satisfying episode than, say, City of Steel or Child's Play. I mean, it really stands on its own as, as a pretty enjoyable and watchable episode. There's nothing inherently uh, flawed with the episode. I mean, yeah, I mean, is, is it logical that uh, the humans could create a ninja robot like that, it, maybe with Transformers technology, but, you know, we are centuries away from creating anything like that. But, you know, in my six-year-old mind, when I watched this as a kid, once I could get past that, yeah, there are robots walking around, and this famous scientist, and he's famous, so of course he can do it, created this ninja robot. Once I get past that, the whole episode makes sense, and it's it's really, it's really uh, fun. You know, uh, I always go back to my early days in the fandom when I try to look at something or analyze it. Uh, and back in the 90s, this episode always had an interesting place. There was speculation that Megatron had feelings or actually had an off-screen physical relationship with Nightbird. And I, I just watched this episode for the first time in like 10 or 15 years, and I just don't see it. I think it's one of those things where back then... It's kind of like when back in the 50s when there were only like two or three TV channels, you know, Howdy Doody meant way more to us than a Howdy Doody program would now. Uh, Leave it to Beaver was way more impactful because, you know, there's Leave it to Beaver and there's a couple other shows. You know, now we have the world open to us. For Transformers fans, you know, we live in this awesome time now where there are all these series, there are all these continuities, there are all these toy lines that we had. But back then, we just didn't have it. And I think people just read too much into what this episode was and what it was about. I mean, in hindsight, that's actually kind of preposterous that we thought that. Not that, you know, somebody wouldn't make a joke about that, but there was actual, like, a sect of the Transformers fandom that really held the notion that Megatron and Nightbird were an item. I mean, they held that as canon to them. And uh, now it's kind of laughable. But, you know, I have to say, with all that 
behind us because the world was different. It's really awesome that we finally got a Nightbird action figure from Takara. You know, in a world where we basically have far exceeded our wildest dreams of new G1 figures, and it's easy to overlook that it's kind of a miracle that we got this toy. I mean, sure, it's a retool of RC, but it's a very competent retool, and it's very nice. I really like it. I mean, if you had told me back in, say, 1998 or 1999 that someday we would have a really nice Nightbird action figure from Takara, and it would come out, then people would immediately forget about it. I'd call you a liar. But here we are. Again, this episode used to mean way more to people than it does today. And to me, it again, it's really an exemplar of what Transformers fiction was. This is what we had. This is, this is why I'm a Transformers fan. I mean, I love this stuff. I eat this stuff up. Yeah, I recognize that it's kind of silly. But watching it, it was a nice stroll down memory lane. And it was a worthwhile diversion. And while it's not the height of fiction, it's still a lot of fun. And to me, still to this day, that's what Transformers is. It's about fun. And so uh, we'll break down a few more of the specifics of the episode. Uh, But Brian is right. This fandom and this hobby is all about fun. And this episode is a bit of a fun one. So Brian pretty much left off that the uh, Decepticons attack Wind and Steel Nightbird. And from there, let's talk a little bit more about the plot and some of the weird things. They take her back to Decepticon base, which is the side of a mountain. We find this is a temporary base, but it is the side of a mountain with a giant Decepticon logo as the shape of the base. This is not well hidden. Um, in this sequence, Bombshell reprograms Nightbird. Uh which begs the question, is she alive or not? And this is one of the big controversies coming out of season two uh, that still exists to this day. And the fact that she does have um, a toy, as Brian mentioned, uh, a few years back as part of the Japanese line Transformers Legends. Uh, And she also appears now uh, in the Transformers Earth Wars video game uh, based off of that toy it is an interesting question whether or not she is alive and whether or not she is a decepticon and uh from there they program her to sneak into the ark she steals uh, a microchip called the world energy source chip um she has a whole bunch of cool weapons including a sword that is essentially a lightsaber complete with lightsaber sound effects because a lot of the sound effects on this show were taken from uh lucasfilm and skywalker sound and so there are very often sound effects that you have heard in the original Star Wars trilogy. Now, another thing worth noting is that during their chase of Nightbird, the Autobots chase her you know, through a mountainside and they jump. she jumps up uh, a cliff, basically. And the Autobots all singularly jump up a cliff except for Cliffjumper, who needs some help. The Autobots eventually capture Nightbird in, quote, an electro-mesh prison, or as we've come to call it here on Transformers University, a cartoon net. Now, the other interesting thing in this episode is Starscream's jealousy of Nightbird, and I think this plays a little bit into what Brian was talking about in terms of people perceiving a relationship between Nightbird and Megatron um, is that some people also perceive uh, a romantic relationship between Starscream and Megatron. 
And it's clear Starscream is jealous in this episode for whatever reason, uh, romantic or otherwise. And uh, it is actually Starscream who shoots Nightbird in the back with his null ray and incapacitates her, giving the victory of the episode to the Autobots where they then return Nightbird to Dr. Fujiyama who says she will be safely locked up forever. And of course then her eyes flash uh, as she is imprisoned. So is she? Uh, And that is where it wraps. And again, as we wrap up this episode, we wrap up Enter the Nightbird, another name in the rogues gallery of Transformers villains from the cartoon. And we'll get this in the comic too as we go on. But it's fun to note that the fun, as Brian mentioned, in Transformers isn't always about the Autobots and the Decepticons. It's also about these other characters and other places and other beings and other races and things uh, and how they interplay within this setting. And that will bring this episode of Transformers University and this look into the cartoon to a close. As always, love for you to join our Patreon, patreon.com slash TFU info, TFU info, where you would have heard this podcast 24 hours before everyone else, as well as gotten in on a whole bunch of interesting goodies and Patreon exclusive posts, podcasts, toy reviews, uh, all sorts of things over there. Now, of course, if you, uh, like the YouTube, swing on by our YouTube channel and subscribe. That is youtube.com slash TFU info. Just hit the bell, ring the bell, as they say on uh, YouTube, and subscribe to the channel. Catch us on social media, Twitter, TFU underscore info, Facebook and Instagram, username TFU info, so facebook.com slash TFU info, instagram.com slash TFU info. And of course, the world's largest and longest running Transforming Toy Archive on the web, www.tfu.info. Next time on the show, we are jumping back into the world of ancillary fiction. We're going to be talking about 1985 Transformers coloring books. Uh, An episode that if you go back and listen to the one we did for 1984 was a lot of fun. Uh, There is a lot of weird stuff in those coloring books. And uh, you can actually get a head start by swinging over to Steve Stonebreaker's site, uh, another patron of the show, and that is camphortree.net, C-A-M-P-H-O-R-T-R-E-E.net, where he has this fantastic archive of Transformers coloring books and storybooks and all sorts of fun things over there, and uh, we'll be covering a whole bunch from 1985 because there were a lot, and we'll begin that analysis next time. Ah. Transformers University. See you.